You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with always typical texas chainsaw lydia (laughs) today's show we're going to be doing the 1974 classic undeniable classic archived for historical importance texas chainsaw massacre it's a year older than i am it is a year older than you are uh it's many years older than me um But I'm excited. I'm super excited. This, dear listeners, is our second annual, because I'm just going to make sure that we do it every year, much to the disdain of Lydia. Yep. That we are going to do a two-part commentary track for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2. I wanted to do Texas Chainsaw... Look, I want to do commentary tracks for Halloween because Halloween is special. And we're a horror movie podcast, and so I think that we should do something special for Halloween. And this was the easiest thing that I could come up with that doesn't involve having to, like, track down interviews or whatever. But when we originally started doing the show, Lydia and I kind of put a couple of films into, like, a moratorium and said that we're probably not ever going to do those. Films that have been so researched, that are so beloved, that are so well-known, that we as horror fans don't even really know what we could add to it. And then it kind of dawned on me that when you guys like horror and you guys like us, you want us to talk about horror even if you've seen it a million times. And we know this because of the requests that we get. And we've listened to other podcasts that cover these big, big shows like this. Mm -hmm. And we still gain something from it. And I think the biggest fear was to have those like nerdly nerdingtons come back at us and be like, well, actually, his last name Franklin or (laughs) something like that, right? We didn't want to field. We just want to talk about horror movies and enjoy it. Where when you're tackling such a big film like this, it can kind of suck the enjoyment out of it. It really can, and it can be intimidating. But I decided that if we're going to do commentary tracks, we are going to pick horror's message movies. The movies that other horror fans and non-horror fans hold up and say, this, this is what the absolute best genre has to offer. This is the film that launches a thousand ships, that inspires so many, that you can't really put your finger on it, why it worked so well, but it did. And that is Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of those real oddities, real oddities. It's a splatter film with not a lot of blood. It's a horror film that people can be terrified of, but it's not really gory. It's not quite a slasher. It's hillbilly horror, but with more slasher elements to it. Like, there's so many different things going on in this movie that really drives home the fact that some of the biggest horror movies come from people that weren't adhering to rules, that were telling a story that they felt like telling, and not really being that involved in horror from the creation of some of these films end up breaking a lot of rules that they don't even know are rules. Or establishing those rules for filmmakers to come. Exactly. 
from this point on, people say, well, if you're doing hillbilly horror, you have to do this. There's, or if you're doing a slasher movie, you need to have this. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. And I think that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a prime example of the best that the genre has to offer. And, dear listeners, there's also a little subversion going on where I'm just trying to trick Lydia into agreeing to do these things because she loves TCM 2. Yeah, I super duper love TCM 2. <laughs> I have a huge love for the first one, for sure. Absolutely. But, yeah. You just like it a little bit more. You're crafty. I'm crafty. That. That's how I got you to do Halloween last year. I don't know. We're running out of sequels, but I think now that you have told me in private... You set a precedent, Wes. You set a precedent. So now I'm like, I don't have to trick her anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I can do whatever I want. (laughs) Yeah. But there is that cache of horror films, like you said, in Moratorium, that we had agreed to not really tackle. That I will one half moan and groan over doing a commentary track, because I think they're just weird. And... (laughs) I don't like the idea of not being able to edit. It's scary. It's I very mean, scary. I make noise and I'm, I'm like, I, I, talk, I do stuff like this and, and stutter and like screw up what I'm saying or use the wrong character name and all those sort of fun things. We definitely, things. we do that guys, but we're not perfect. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is the fact that we have a horror podcast. We know everything all the time. We don't make mistakes. Fuck it. Like, we make mistakes all the time. So don't be shitty about it. If we, if we call a character by the wrong name, <laughs> like, back off. Yeah, exactly. It's easier with these big, big ones, though, because we yeah. have steeped in them for many, many years, like mm-hmm. a lot of like avid horror fans have. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't be able to tackle them and they are really tempting no matter how big they are a commentary track kind of helps because we won't have time to like really uh we'll gather over these titles too too much because we'll be you know at the whims of the script and dialogue Mm -hmm, for when mm -hmm. people are following along if people actually do that i think that'd be absolutely charming and i hope that they do at some point (laughs) the uh movie crypt has done the same sort of thing as well. They don't typically do commentary tracks, but around Halloween they do as well. Um, there's podcasts that specifically are only commentary tracks, and mm-hmm. a lot of times I can't listen to them because I know they're going to get cut off yeah. in their thoughts because they're following along with the script. And it's just going to be a lot of, and it does tend to be quite a lot of like, oh yeah, this scene, haha, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're going to try and shy away from that. Too. We we try to shy away from that. I think what really helps is if we we have the audio off, we just have subtitles on because A, we don't want to get sued. And B, I think it's better to stimulate constant conversation because if we could hear, if I could hear the dialogue, I would be shutting up so I'd much. be watching it. Yeah, yeah, I would just be, we'll fall into the water because first and foremost, we're horror fans and we both love this movie. So yeah, it would be long periods of silence and just, oh, I love this part. I've actually listened to commentary tracks that do that. And like <laughs> commentary podcasts, when I'm out of podcasts, when there's not a new Bind Torture cast to listen to yeah. and I'm fucked, I'm like, what am I going to listen to? This crappy <laughs> podcast or like this comedy podcast. Eek. Yuck. Comedy horror podcasts are the bane of my existence. But um, when we watch movies, typically, we are very quiet because we are film fans. We like watching films. And when we watch films for Dead Air, we typically are on one end of the couch each and not really talking a hell of a lot. And there's times, sometimes, when we'll pause or rewind a thing and pause to actually have a conversation about it. But it's... We don't really talk much through the films. Not really. Sometimes I got a couple of zingers. Yeah. 
<laughs> that you, you put in your pocket for the show. <laughs> but yeah, this will be that alive unfettered. And that's part of what terrifies me from a production point of view. From a production point of view, it's sometimes like, yeah, like it could end up being kind of a sloppy mess. But I think that it's got to be special and it's all in real time and no editing and it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Even if we fuck up, I'm going to be like, it's gonna, it, this is great. This is great. Because it's a great film. It's a great film. And I don't think that like celebrating it is going to be that difficult. Let me ask you this, because before we even get into it, and we're going to be starting the movie really soon. What, what was, do you remember your first time ever experiencing this film? Do you remember hearing about it before you actually watched it? Did, was it just something that was, oh, it's on TV. What's this? Or my parents talked a lot about film. They were avid film watchers. They enjoyed horror film. They'd gone to see stuff like this in the theater. And it was all still something that they talked about with friends. And so my first viewing of Texas Chainsaw Massacre came after Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Because I went on and on about wanting to rent it. My parents kept saying, no, 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 no. I'm not sure if they had seen it already or not. Um, Because when it was new, there was quite a bit of a buzz around it. Because it had been so long, right? Mm -hmm. And it looked like a comedy. I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 over and over and over to the point where my dad was like, you really got to watch something else, please. Because he didn't enjoy it. He was like, kept questioning me, like, why do you enjoy this? And it's really, really gory. And I guess it was not gory as the first one. The first one wasn't a splatter film necessarily. And my dad was like, well, you might as well watch the first one. I mean, you need some sort of like basis. And I was very, very interested in the Sawyer family by that point. So I went and rented the first one and watched it twice as well. So that was my my first viewing of it. And I enjoyed it very, very much. And I liked having it as the background for who's my my new pals, the Sawyers, right? Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed seeing a little more of where they came from. Mm -hmm. So that was my first viewing of it. I'm sure a lot of people's first viewing of Texas Chainsaw Massacre came after the remakes. Uh, yeah, there's definitely people in our audience that would be way more familiar with the 2004 remakes, which started this massive people like, oh, horror remakes, horror remakes. Oh, I'm so sick of them. It really was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake that made a boatload of cash that really put the momentum into the idea that, oh, we could take movies from the 70s and 80s yeah. and redo them and they'll make money. They weren't wrong. And there's a huge line in the sand in fans, too. I love the remake. Yeah. I love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Mm-hmm. It's not like any better or less to me than mm-hmm. the first one. Mm-hmm. The second one is completely different than the second one. So like there's a whole different world in the Hewitt family, an yeah. entirely different world. But that that nut, that, that kernel of fear that's contained in this film, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, is still contained in the remake. I love that. I love both of these films exactly equally. But there's a lot of people. Like, I got to have the front row seat from a not-horror fan perspective about a week ago when somebody... I was watching um, Friday the 13th 2. Cool. And they felt that the Friday the 13th series was fun and weird and old and didn't really come into its own until after Jason lives. Really? I know, right? Really? So I stopped talking to them. And then <laughs> they kept talking, of course, because people do. And 
someone like someone like it was just me and two other people and someone says something about like a lot like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I'm thinking what are you gonna say that it doesn't come into its own until like New Beginning or yeah, something new, yeah that like one. what what where is this going um, and they had said that they found the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre compared to the remake they like the remake right a lot um, they found the original nice for what it is and boring and old like and sort of shrugging along like well what do you expect from something that's old of course it's not going to be good that sort of attitude so of course i wasn't in this conversation anymore i was just watching friday 13th part two like this i wanted to this sentence has fucking enraged me i'm like i feel my fucking happy facial expression twisting into something i don't recognize What's happening? I know, right? I'm ooh, I'm furrowing my brow. How do you sit in the same room with that conversation? Oh, what do you expect? It's old? Yeah. I'm so fucking incensed. You know, like, I don't... Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. It's, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That was sort of the exact same conversation going on in my head while this was happening. So I just, you know, I didn't want to entertain. I'm not going to have a conversation. It, it's just people. sometimes you want to just shake somebody for just the ignorance. The ignorance. It's, oh. Well, they shouldn't have wasted their time watching that film. They should have watched something that they enjoy. And you know what? Like, I, I, again, this answers my question. Who are these remakes for? Them. They're for the, it's for them. That's who the remake is for. Mm-hmm. And and at, at the one hand, I'm happy that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake has introduced somebody into this beloved franchise. And, and I think that, great, great. I mean, you don't like the old one. All right. You like the, the remake. I'm kind of ambivalent about the remake. There's things in it that I do not like. I've talked about them on the show. Um, I think what is very interesting, in the same way that the remake of Ringu, to me, is a very good example of showing people the differences between Asian and Western audiences, what they consider scary, what they consider horror, and how uh, narrative structure within film works from different uh, sides of the world. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake versus uh, the 2004 versus the 1974 version are very, very good examples about what a modern horror audience expects out of a movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre versus what audiences in the 1970s would have expected from a film called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think that because you're dealing with... Because the remake, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a very, very... Uh, faithful interpretation of the story it's the same story with a few like changes here and yeah, there it is um, um there's a couple of extra more there's more tension scenes it's a lot more violent that's for sure um the 2004 i mean like it's a fairly faithful i have to say fairly faithful yeah okay it's it's faithful in that it's yeah, because they 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 pick up the girl. It's completely different. Oh, you know, yeah. There's a lot of things that are very, oh, very I forgot, different. But I the, forgot about the nut that. of the story. The, yeah, the and colonel. the family itself and yeah. Leatherface himself. Oh, the, I told... the group of, of kids in a van. I mean, so many stories, stories start out like that, so it seems sort of weak of me to say. Um, there is a lot that's changed, mm-hmm. but the, the nut of the story and the motivation yeah. of the family... And the the what the girl goes through yeah, yeah. is is faithful. Boy, I forgot, I forgot about that. I forgot about that 
the whole opening sequence that you just taught. And then when you said it, I was like, oh my God, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so there are very different elements to it, but I think it's still a really good example about, again, what modern audiences expect versus what older audiences expected. And that was my first experience watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, Anyone who knows me, the type of horror fan that I am, um, I had to do a lot of uh, backtracking, a lot of backtracking, because I was discovering a lot of this stuff on my own. The only thing that I really knew about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was that glorious title and that it was a it was a movie that people almost were trying were daring me to watch. And it was the same thing with um the only other film that I could think of that people were like you you, you this is kind of like you have to watch this. You're a horror fan, you have to watch this. Was Cannibal Holocaust. That's the other one that really pops up in my head as something that Gotta watch it, gotta watch it, gotta watch it. Yeah. So I, I got Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I lent it from a friend. And I did watch it. And I remember being very surprised. I liked it a lot. A lot, a lot. But it wasn't violent like I thought it was going to be violent. It wasn't... Well, you've also got that whole generations of people who are convinced that Pam gets a meat hook right through. And her. we'll definitely talk about yeah, we we'll will. definitely talk about the meat hook scene because there's a lot to talk about with that. See, even the people recommending it might have had that gleam in their eye of them oh. thinking they saw that, and then uh, so they're pitching it to you, so you're expecting whatever oh, yeah. caused oh, yeah. cause that gleam in their eye, right? Yeah. And it's not there, but mm-hmm. it was a it was the same thing where you, you you know I remember when I was I went to go see The Exorcist in the theater uh, when it got re released yeah and and my my aunt and my mother being like oh don't oh that, oh that's don't so, that's too scary that's too scary I don't know don't I don't know and like and and then saying oh, okay well, and then we went and look I love The Exorcist uh, a, a lot it's it, it speaks to me on so many different levels and what a landmark film but i wasn't scared in the theater watching it my first time watching it was the same too where yeah. my mom was my mom was cringing she'd walk yeah. in the room and still cringe while i was watching it for the mm-hmm. first time as if it were her first time mm-hmm. and she'd seen it many times my, yeah. my mom and dad went to see that in the theater yeah as well, right? it's, it's it's same if you ask a certain generation uh what their scariest films are they'll pop out movies like texas chainsaw Black Christmas, The Exorcist. Which, you know, aren't that scary. Aren't that scary, but amazing films that I love. But for the most part, yeah, it it can be a a little jarring that there is a difference. But I think that that type of shit is just so important. It's so important as horror fans to know this stuff. And it's also the ideas behind it, right? The ideas behind these things are scary because you're a thinking horror fan. You're not just sitting there. Oh, yeah. Like, insert tape, turn off brain. Absolutely. It's the ideas that are terrifying. It's the ideas that stick with you. And this is something that even now, let alone in 1974, you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that whole idea and the fear and what Sally goes through, the family existing, Mm -hmm. scares the hell out of people. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of being dared to watch it, and it is kind of like a dare when someone's like, oh my god, you gotta see this. Yeah. Um, we can't talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, at least I can't, without mentioning Men, Women, and Chainsaws mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. Carol Clover. A very cool book. And um, a book that a lot of people that write horror literature talk about. End quote. Yeah. End quote. And a lot of the... It's sort of like a, a nice stepping stone into film theory and horror film theory because she cites a lot of the classic 
literature and film theorists and sociologists that talk about horror film in a in a very academic and clinical manner which is thoroughly enjoyable if you're going to geek out about horror film if you're going beyond just insert tape and turn off brain uh carol clover was also dared to watch texas chainsaw massacre and i'm so glad that she was because then it turned into books and thinking and her in interviews you rarely watch a quality horror documentary without some sort of quip from Carl Clover and she's inspired a lot of other people to pursue a similar path like our friend Amy Jane Vosper who's mm-hmm. actually been on the show yeah. and is doing her a PhD I think right now mm-hmm. um, yeah she's doing a thesis or a doctorate or writing something she's like sequestered writing with piles <laughs> of books all around her on her coffin table it's true <laughs> not a pun coffin table it truly is a coffin that she uses as a table I love it. It's great. Yeah, it's made to measure. She fits in it. Oh, great. I love it. Um, But Carol Clover was also dared to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'm going to read a little bit from her beginning of Men, Women, and Chainsaws. This book began in 1985 when a friend dared me to go see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was familiar with the horror classics and with stylish or quality horror, Hitchcock, De Palma, and the like. But exploitation horror I had assiduously avoided. Seeing Texas was a jolting experience in more ways than one. It jolted me into questioning for the first time the notion of the male gaze and its assumption of masculine mastery. It also jolted me into wondering about the notion of exploitation and the relation of that to film theory, which led me to a video store the following day to check out three more movies on the basis of their box covers Screaming Women, Poised Knives, and Terrified Eyeballs. Which, that's the reaction I'd like to see from most new horror fans, right? Go out and get more. And she goes on to say, Like many such stories, mine has something of the character of a conversation narrative. The initial dare took me into a territory I might not otherwise have explored, and against all odds, I have ended up something of a fan. Like others before me, I discover that there are in horror moments and works of great humor formal brilliance, political intelligence, psychological depth, and above all, a kind of kinky creativity that is simply not available in any other stripe of filmmaking. One of the benefits of this project has been the discovery of the unexpected gem. And that's not in quotes, but I'd like to put unexpected gem in air quotes because she's not talking about a specific unexpected gem, but it's that journey of the discovery of the unexpected gem. And although I now look forward to catching up on good movies, and she has good in quotes, <laughs> she looks forward to catching up on good movies, I will never see any kind of movie with quite the same eyes again. To a remarkable extent, horror has come to seem to me not only the form that most obviously trades in the repressed, but itself the repressed of mainstream filmmaking. When I see an Oscar-winning film like The Accused or The Artful Alien and its blockbuster sequel Aliens, or more recently, and this dates this passage, Sleeping with the Enemy and Silence of the Lambs, and even Thelma and Louise, Mm. I cannot help thinking of all the low-budget, often harsh and awkward, but sometimes deeply energetic films that preceded them by a decade or more. Films that said it all, and in flatter terms, and on a shoestring. If mainstream film detains us with its niceties of plot, character, motivation, cinematography, pacing, acting, and the like, low or exploitation horror operates at the bottom line, and in doing so reminds us that every movie has a bottom line 
no matter how covert or mystified or sublimated it may be. That's a lengthy passage to basically say, that's why we're doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, (laughs) y'all. You can't really talk about this film in this day and age without really dissecting it. And she does an exemplary job at picking apart a lot of other films. Like The whole book is not about TCM. It's about that entire genre and splatter and the male and female and how that works into the plot line, which we're not going to really get into, you know. Probably, no, 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 no. We'll be too busy enjoying the film. We'll be too right? busy enjoying the film, yeah. I love reading about other people's thoughts. It's much more valuable to me to follow along film theorists because I, I'm no academic, right? I am definitely a hobbyist when it comes to this sort of thing. But it sure beats the hell out of listening to some rando sit there and spout off about like, well, it's good for what it is and it's important, yeah, but it's boring and... I like the remake better. Yeah. Woof. Ooh. Yeah. Gets me going. But it's interesting that she points out that's a lot of why we revel in this sort of thing. I revel in Bessé Moi, where other people might enjoy Thelma and Louise. It's the exact same story to me. But, mm-hmm. again, boiled yeah, down. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. On a shoestring. Yeah. I just love that passage. And, of course, the book, I, I do have, I do butt up a lot against these theories especially feminist theory and film theory but that beginning when i first read this passage at the beginning of her book i was like oh good she's one of us she understands (laughs) she gets it i love her already yeah yeah okay so what we're gonna do is we are going to count down from three lydia is gonna press play we are at um we got four seconds on the clock right now we're at the vortex hinkle hooper production banner to let you know where we are, and in, uh, when I count down from three, we're going to be off and running. Three, two, one, a film by Toby Hooper. Now, the interesting thing about the way that this movie starts off, it, it comes at you real hard with that based on a true story. Can I read it? Yeah, go ahead. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could have not expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon became a a nightmare. I missed a word. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love that word, annals. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> it's so good. Um, Toby Hooper, I'd, like a, a lot of people now would say, like, yeah, it's based off of the the crimes of Ed Gein and, and similar things like that. To me, it always seemed more similar to... Uh, the Bloody Bender family, like that family of Texans that killed people, more specifically Ed Gein. I mean, there's very Gein-like things, what with the furniture and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But uh, to me, it like everything just se- seemed more like the Benders to me, just based on the fact that it was a family and that kind of stuff. That's well, a bit of a pastiche. Like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Toby Hooper actually said that he had uh, he had heard. He, he was definitely inspired by Ed Gein, but he didn't know that it was actually Ed Gein that he was inspired by. He just, he heard the, he didn't realize that they were the same person, that the, the, the crimes that he was referencing was that until later. So he wasn't like a huge 
true crime fan and he had just like not really. vaguely heard idle conversation about this guy that made skin yeah. suits. I always forget that this opening sequence, like to me, when this movie starts, it's like armadillo, and that's what I think. I forget almost every single time that the first thing that we're really seeing is blackness and then camera shots lighting up these gooey, rotten corpses. Mm-hmm. Which I always sort of think is like an aftermath thing. This is when the cops are called later and that's like crime scene photography going on or mm-hmm. something. Like, I'm not really sure why that's there, but I guess it's also to just sort of whet your appetite or get you ready for what you're about to see. I always think that what it was supposed to be was it was supposed to be indicating because right now we're getting to the uh, building of this plot. We see like the, the corpse obelisk and... Now that we're at the graveyard, we know that this is the genesis of Sally and her friends coming to this area. It's because they believe that their grandfather's grave might have been desecrated. I always think that those the digging in the cameras is our hitchhiker friend and Leatherface doing the deeds the night, and this is the morning of when everything was discovered. That's what I always interpreted it as. Okay, so they're also like hepped up on their grave robbing and ready to make artwork and stuff like that. So they're extra agitated and a little more excited. Who do you think, who do you think is the artist of the family? Because I'm thinking about that all the time. It can't be Leatherface. Do you don't think? Why do you think it can't be Leatherface? I'm being unfair. Is Do you think it's Leatherface? I think it's Leatherface. I really do. Because he's, you know, got some, he's got lots of time on his hands. He doesn't have many chores. He doesn't have to really do the cooking or cleaning, really. A little bit of mm-hmm. cleaning, but not like... You know, his big job is the butchery, mm-hmm. and there's only so much butchery you can do, and he deals with those bones and things like that all the time, so I'm sure he'd, like, get to some nice musculature and be like, that looks really cool. I'm going to set mm-hmm. that aside. Mm-hmm. I really think he's the artist. And you know what? I might, you might have put me in your camp, because I'm also thinking about the fact that he gets really inspired by faces, and he likes to make the masks. Yeah. And, you know, there's that scene where he's sort of, observing Sally's face. Mm-hmm. So looking with an artist's eye, one might suggest. Yeah. So yeah, 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 maybe. Because I've always, like, I would have said up until like five minutes ago, it's definitely the hitchhiker, right? He's the photographer, at the very least. Are these solar flares? Um, I think it's supposed to, because remember, it's, it's, it's about the planets aligning and so everything's in retrograde. Yeah, <laughs> everything's in retrograde, got some hippy-dippy zodiac shit going down. Yeah, definitely. It's not a good time for Franklin to be out here, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's also, I, I always chuck it as like the, the heat making people a little extra crazy in Texas. Oh my god. You know that this armadillo was originally, they, they were, originally they had like a dog and then a horse and a then, horse? Uh, and then they sell... Because it was what they could find, right? Yeah, the they, dog I knew about, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, the horse. And apparently the horse was just too, like, icky, ooey-gooey, or whatever. So they went with the armadillo instead. The horse kind of surprised me, but I knew about the dog. But then I was like, what, do they just walk down the side of the road looking for roadkill? But I'm like, I have walked down the side of the road looking for roadkill. A lot of this stuff was that, right? I mean, a lot of it was going to slaughterhouses and thrift stores and just whatever they could find. I know that... There's a lot of real skeletons being used in this, and not for some reason other than the fact that real bones are cheaper than plastic. Yeah. 
It's definitely true, and it's still true today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Keep that in mind, filmmaker friends. <laughs> That's why in Poltergeist, all those cadavers in that pool were real. Yeah. But that seems crazy to me because that movie has such a massive budget. I was like, if you're spending the money anyways. What's well, why mean? waste it there? <laughs> yeah, like, really? Like, why waste it there? Um, I would have liked to know if, like, the dummy cadaver at the beginning with the opening scene of this, if that would have been real, it wouldn't disturb me. Mm -hmm. It would have been another, like, cost-saving measure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Robert Burns, I think, was the uh, the guy that, like, gathered a lot of this stuff together, and it was really just, like, a collection. What do you think... Was it, was it the fact that uh, Kirk screamed that made Franklin <laughs> roll down this hill? Probably. I don't know. I never really gave it much thought because he just he lost his balance one way or another. He's kind of precariously perched on the edge of the berm, so anything could have like rolled him over, the poor guy. I guess so. You know, the best thing about this film, honestly, is just how fucking hot and miserable everyone looks because they were hot and miserable. Yeah, you can't fake that, right? <laughs> yeah, they really truly are hot and miserable. What do you have to say about Jerry's shirt? <laughs> It's hideous and terrifying. I think it's probably a hunt and kill scene. And it is like it's it's dog will hunt going on on his shirt. It really is. <laughs> when people when I'm thinking about the 1970s and I'm thinking about what people from the 1970s look like, it's only Jerry that I'm thinking about. Like, But if you look closely, his shirt is a Genghis Khan fox hunt. It's fucked up. That's the most fucked up shirt. That's great costuming right there when you think about it. But yeah, at a distance, if you squint your eyes, hideous. Oh my god, it looks like upholstery of some kind. Yeah. That plus his, his poofy haircut and his glasses, which I admit, I'm jealous of the glasses. I'm kind of jealous of their nipples. <laughs> There's a lot of nipple action in this film. It was the olden days. Yeah. People were not down with bras anymore. Screw bras, even like pasties to hide just those headlights. Mm -hmm. I'm down with the pasties for sure. Mm -hmm. Nipples, like all the running that they do with these shirts that would exacerbate nipples, it's got to be like really painful. So there's an extra element of pissed offedness aside from the heat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely, uh, between uh, Pam and Sally, there's really not a lot of clothes going on. Sally's shirt gets ripped even more than that, and it's just a tank top. Yeah, poor thing. Yeah, absolutely. Pam's wearing even less. She's just wearing, like, itty-bitty shorts and a bathing suit top, basically. Pretty much, yeah. It probably offers a little more support for her nipples, though. <laughs> I, I'm really worried about the nipples. Like, if you've ever worn a shirt with a, a bra or anything and had to do any sort of activity, it's, it can get pretty painful. No, oh, and she definitely is going to be running a lot. Now, they basically have decided that after they look at the... After they look after the, the grave of the grandfather and nothing seems to be going wrong, I guess they're going to go visit the house or something like that. I don't know. Like, are they just... They just want to see it? Is that what you think it is? Yeah, or? and just tour around. Like, I've gone on uh, trips up to the Peaver graveyard up north with my father, and we went to check out the old homestead and stuff afterward and drive around some of the areas that I had been when I was really little. So I, it strikes me as very, very normal. Mm -hmm. It's not like you go all the way up there and then just turn around. Mm -hmm. What I really dig about this scene of, of Franklin talking about the 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 way that they slaughter these cattle because they they get overwhelmed by the smell because I could only fucking imagine what that smells like 
and then Franklin talking about how they used to slaughter these animals with a sledgehammer, and then now they use that air gun that shoots the dart into the head, and so it's a lot more efficient, but this is the building of the plot of this movie. This is one of those things that really kind of shows you how a lot of people got thrown out of work, and uh, people became poverty-stricken, and could maybe make people uh, not like uh, other people coming into their town. That and if they... you're thinking about it like now, like you're, you're like, oh, well, they don't even use a bolt everywhere anymore. They electrocute them lots of times. Yeah. So it's even become more um, machinized. And like most of the slaughter is heavily mechanized mm-hmm. at this point. Even back then, it was already a dying trade in a way, mm-hmm. or at least the bare bones slaughter of animals with like your bare hands kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that Franklin doesn't want to pick up the guy, but she's like, you can sit by Franklin. That line that Pam delves out where he's like, oh, he's weird looking. Apparently that was ad-libbed. Yeah. Just just looking at uh, the Well, he's fucking weird looking. I totally Holy agree. Crap. There's some um, scenes that were deleted of Pam that established her as a little more of a bitch to Franklin. And I find in those deleted scenes, the the look and the things she's saying and her laugh are very baby firefly. Really? Yeah, yeah. She's got like a way, like she's got that crazy laugh. You don't, I don't really think you hear that crazy laugh until like maybe the end of a really crazy laugh out of her. But even when she's joking around with her brother, she's very baby firefly. Mm-hmm. My family's well, always been in meat, he says. Mm, Love that. <laughs> Whole family of Draculas. <laughs> Such a great line. Old Edwin Neal. What do you got to say about Edwin Neal being the hitchhiker in this film, man? Aside from perfect, I mean, like, you'd look at him and you'd think, if you hadn't watched, I'd like, I've never, like, seen some interviews and stuff like that where he describes his motivations. Like, he had a brother, apparently, that was in, uh, that was uh, schizophrenic. So mm-hmm. he based a lot of his motivation from the very first casting call on his brother. Um, he looks like a person you've just dragged off the street and stuck in a movie. Yeah. Such a convincing creepy performance the tension is palatable in this van the second he gets there and it just kind of gets weirder and weirder as he just keeps talking you ever eaten head cheese i've never eaten head cheese now head cheese was uh one of the working titles for this film oh sweet yeah i had to uh look up what head cheese was. What? Really? I, I thought it was... I, I was like, is it some kind of cheese they make out of beef? That doesn't make any sense to me. No, it's deli meat. I didn't realize. Have you ever had head cheese? Uh, yes. I've had homemade head cheese that my mother's made. And my I've had my grandmother's head cheese. We've definitely made head cheese. And they've bought in head cheese before to bring it home and compare. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Compare it to their homemade and who made better head cheese. So this is totally a thing. This is totally a thing. He's not even saying these things to freak them out. That's what I love the most about this character, especially coming from the countryside, is that I can really relate to him on many levels, especially the head cheese level. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Taking back his <laughs> Taking back his photos all dejected. Like what, you don't want to look at my <laughs> slaughtered cow Polaroids? I like that he just seems so infatuated with this knife. And then he's just going to cut right into his fucking hand. Do you, like, I've never really understood why he's doing this. Is it just because he likes how it hurts? Is he trying to freak them out? Like, what do you think he's doing? 
And it's really nice and sharp. And he's like, that is so sharp, I could totally cut my palm. Oh, my God. It's so weird. Maybe he's overdue for a bloodletting. <laughs> you think that's what it is? He's calmed down a little. He's got boiled blood. He's got to, like, cool off. Yeah. At this point, I'm wondering if they shouldn't just, like, toss him out of the van. But, I mean, they're probably just too shocked. Because that would be your reaction, right? If you just had this reaction of, like, like this guy's just cutting his hand in the back of the van. Nobody moves. That's a good thing he didn't pull a gun out of his vagina. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Not to be technical, but I wouldn't really call that a knife. It's a, it's a straight razor. It is a straight razor, yes. And yeah. I've always kind of hinged on There's a few things in this film that I really hinge on. It's one of those things where, you know, where you have a moment in a film where the a character says something... And you sort of gap out thinking about it for the next 10 minutes and kind of miss what's going on in the film. There's a yeah. couple moments in this film that every time I sort of hinge on them, I hinge on the straight razor. Yeah, like it does seem really strange. What do you think that is on his face? Birthmark. It's a birthmark. Oh. Yeah, I, I'd always thought that it was a big like a swash of blood or something like that. That's what I thought Like why would they pick somebody up? But they must get, like you, when you look really good, it's like a port wine stain is the, yeah. I think the term for that particular style of birthmark. I have a giant birthmark that runs across the whole left side of my face. Really? Yeah. I've never seen it. It's very faint. You might think that my face is dirty. But it runs up the side of my head and everything. It's huge. It's about the same size as his, except on the side of my, like, between my cheekbone and my ear, and very, very faint. Mm-hmm. That's also why they don't, like, would you let someone in your van that has a huge fucking splatter of blood across them and not ask them, are you okay? Yeah, yeah. It is really, yeah, no, that's a really good point. I guess it never really dawned on me. I thought it was a birthmark, or maybe I thought it might have been. Well, you're also, you're like, well, I'm sitting down to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I guess this is where it begins. Yeah, this is, um, (laughs) that's really true. You want to know the most egregious thing that I think about this, him taking the photo of Franklin, Mm -hmm. is that he wants to charge two bucks for it. Two dollars. Two dollars in 1974. I definitely did a little research because I wanted to know what is that equivalent to in 2016? It's over 10 bucks. I, you know, considering where they are, they're in their van, they picked up a hitchhiker. I, you're, I totally agree that it is vastly overpriced. <laughs> but if you're like walking downtown and there's a street photographer that takes your photo in front of a landmark, they're probably going to charge you 10 bucks. So that is the going rate for tourism photography. Yeah, I guess so. This is one of the many things that the hitchhiker does. Which I always kind of think is like he's trying to like do a spell or something. Like there's some kind of ritual involved in this. Or do you think he's just really aggravated that he doesn't want the picture? So he's like, I'll destroy this picture then. He's operating on the level of a seven-year-old Dennis Menace. I think right here. But I, I do get your ritualisticness out of yeah. it. And the fact that he's putting it into a spirit pouch. <laughs> yeah. After, so... It could be in a way that they're they're now cursed. Yeah. Oh my God. This is just about where he like goes unhinged. Poor Franklin. Poor Franklin. Never... And on photos and burning photos and stuff like that is very heavy in voodoo. That's what well. I'm saying, so, like, right? Yeah. And then he does this fucking thing, where he wipes his cut hand on the side of the van. Marks their van for for future targeting. Yeah. 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 
Then he's just fucking going apeshit. It doesn't really seem that they're driving that fast because he could. It seems like if he wanted to, he could catch up with them. When he's easily. kicking the van, I'm like, drive faster, dumbass. But it would have been nice if he'd have written a sigil or like a bull's head or something. Oh my in god, his right? Blood. Yeah, that would have been a little more clearly telegraphed, other than just a smear. But hey, how many people drive around with a big smear of blood that isn't on the van in this shot? That's true. Um, <laughs> it's the last goddamn hitchhiker they'll ever pick up. Yeah. <laughs> and this really is, there's so much horror when people say, like, so there's these young people driving in their Scooby Doo mystery van and they're in the lonely backwoods of Texas and they pick up a hitchhiker and everyone kind of like sucks their teeth and goes, oh, that's so cliche. Well, it's because this movie did it first. And it fucking worked. That's right. And how many people, like, many people were on road trips. I remember you and I having a conversation about, like, what do you mean you just drive? Yeah. And this is the culture that that comes from. This is a culture that I grew up in where my parents would often take us on drives for, you know, sometimes a reason, sometimes not. Sometimes to go and see if that lake still had tadpoles or if that washout had cleared from last year up this road. Crazy long hours and hours driving through the country. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a culture, a holdover from like the 50s car culture of taking a Sunday drive with the family. <laughs> now you're taking a drive with your teenage friends and smoking dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I asked my mom about that and I was like, was it really like that? I sounded like a fucking bewildered child when I was asking <laughs> her that on the show. This is a fun little bit of uh, movie trivia. Did you know that the original surname of this family wasn't Sawyer? In this script, it was Slaughter. Oh, really? And there's evidence of that because in this gas station, up by the Coca-Cola sign, there's W-E slaughter. We slaughter. That's the joke. Do you see? Yeah. We slaughter barbecue. We slaughter barbecue. But that was apparently the original surname of the family. And that was the only holdover of that. Like William Everett Slaughter. (laughs) <laughs> or Sergeant Slaughter. This um, gas station became a restaurant for a little while. And then uh, I think it's a um, a museum now. I think it's like a horror museum or something, well, something wasn't, like that. Um, wasn't Gunnar Hansen looking to open this as a museum, as a permanent museum? Oh, maybe. And I don't maybe An homage did... to like both Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th. That's what I, I vaguely recall. That's true. That's true. Uh, so maybe it, maybe it didn't get open. Maybe I just heard that it was trying to get open. I mean, now old Gunnar Hansen's dead now, so I don't know whatever came of that. But I do know that it was eventually moved, and it did become like a, a restaurant at some yeah. point. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Makes me wish that I ate there. <laughs> I wonder if they had, like, themed menu items. Just beef. I'll just eat beef. You know what I mean? Nothing but beef. Yeah. You know, art imitates life. You've got the fact that Sorry, I start watching this window washing because it's, like, mesmerizing. (laughs) Apparently the actor that was responsible for doing the uh, window washing scene, uh, the the guy that's supposed to be, like, the gas station attendant, he apparently, um, when he initially did it, he threw this bucket and it completely soaked uh, the actor playing Jerry. Mm -hmm. And apparently, like, Jerry really lost his temper. So of all the scenes that are in this movie, you see he's only washing one side of the van is because he was very nervous about like accidentally getting him wet again. He was staying away from Jerry. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a lot of the Picton Pink Farm killings in a way because they actually packaged the meat of the girls that were killed there mm-hmm. and sold them in Vancouver. Oh wow! 
Yeah. Everyone just wants a Coke. I love looking at old stuff like that in scenes where it's just looking at... Have you ever used one of those old Coke machines? No, are you kidding me? No. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, I have, definitely. Really? Yeah. It's it's a very weird mechanism, and you worry that it's going to smash the bottle every fucking time. When you pull it out, there's these two metal things that hold the bottle in there until you, and it unlocks it so that you can pull it out but even then it like scrapes on the glass and it's very like precarious yeah this is just about where Franklin's character really starts to get obsessive about that hitchhiker I find really just asking people like could you do that to yourself like he's right now he's very interested in in what the hitchhiker had done to himself and I believe that it's Franklin's character that's constantly asking, do you think it means something? Do you think this means something? He's the one that's postulating, is this a ritual of some kind? And I'm totally fixated on the fact that he has mad psoriasis on the underside of his left arm. Um, I think that also Franklin being disabled has, he has a little more insight, a far more than most people, into genuine body horror. Mm-hmm. Aw. What the? So freaked out by the blood. <laughs> well, it's kind of weird. I, I would have just maybe asked the gas uh, attendant, could you get that for me? Or can can I have your rag? Yeah, and I'll so wash I can, it off. Can I get that off? Because they're just like, oh, yeah, there's blood on the side of the car. And that's baked blood on the side of the car. Oh, God. <laughs> like 100 degree heat and metal under the sun. Yeah, it's cooked blood now. Oh, my God, yeah. Apparently, uh, filming in that van was just god-awful. Just the fact that it was so hot outside and it was so hot inside and the fact that, you know, you have the, the camera operator and the, 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 the boom mic operator and Toby in that van at the same time. Yeah. Just all crammed in the back. Which would have been insane. I, I don't like the heat and I don't like sweating. They must have been toweling off every 10 seconds to get decent shots. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I would really feel like eating sausages if I was in a cooking van like that I'd just be like you know what well, look at the look on his face does it look like he looks, feels like he eats sausages <laughs> nope <laughs> I do like sausages I don't like pork so much but these mm-hmm. are made of people so I wonder it's yummy yeah yeah I guess they would be made of people that's not established in this movie just yet but you could probably assume yeah I just always assume that any food that you get on the roadside of texas is made of people mm-hmm. <laughs> i love this shot i love the shots of the house of the exterior shots when i was a little kid i grew up in a farmhouse for the most part and uh there's one day i'm getting on the school bus and i like i've i noticed a lot of the kids looking at the house and they were like you know what we really love your house and i'm like thanks thinking like it's just an old farmhouse and they all lived in farmhouses too, so I'm like, how is this weird? And like, yeah, it totally looks like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was like, <laughs> on one hand, thinking like, yeah, of course it does. Stay the fuck away. Same way when I got a nosebleed that a kid told me I looked like Dracula. I was like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> um, that was in like kindergarten. I oh, that. wow. I love that day. Whole family of Draculas. Whole family of Draculas. But then part of me was all like, I, we do not look like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We're like a nice, normal family. You're nothing like those fucking mania. What the fuck? Like I was one half impressed and one half disturbed. Especially when like three houses down there was this fucking house. There was a house that was surrounded by trees. It was fucking looked abandoned all the time. And it was 
scary. Every time I walked by it, I was terrified and trying to look in and make sure a victim wasn't running out that I had to save. <laughs> I was trying to think about um, a lot of times in, in horror, if it takes place in the woods of the country or something like that, it will remind me of, oh, this reminds me of my cottage. That's why I like the Friday the 13th franchise so much yeah. because it really reminds me of my cottage. Um, they don't really look the same, but it's like the feel and the sounds and the attitude and coolers full of food. That's what reminds me of my cottage. This reminds me, and I, I asked my mother about it because I wanted to confirm. I was like, did we go up to an old farmhouse sometimes? Did, like, was there this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and it was kind of run down? And I remember outhouses and tall grass and all that kind of stuff because it really reminds me of this house. Yeah. Uh, obviously not this dilapidated, but um, my mom said that, yes, when we were kids, very, very young, my my uh, Auntie Doe would rent out this house that I guess was a, a, like w- one part, like a friend of the family's or on her side or, or whatever the, the fuck. But we would eventually uh, go down there periodically. And I have like these primal memories of a place that wasn't too dissimilar to this. Yeah. 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 Especially those exterior shots where it could yeah. be any place. You know, the inside of the house could look like the Sawyer house or could look like the inside of this house where it's completely abandoned or be a very nice restored farmhouse, which can be very beautiful places. But from the outside, you got your imagination running wild, right? Yeah, absolutely. Old old Franklin here. Paul Partain, um, the actor that played Franklin, uh, apparently quite the method actor during this. Mm-hmm. He didn't have a lot of acting experience, and so he went with the method route. And Good. so it was apparently in character as Franklin through the entire shoot, and apparently it was just insufferable. This character gets a lot of hate from even fans of this film and you know if you go look online to top 10 most annoying characters it's franklin is always on the list so is shelly from the friday the 13th series um but uh you know i do feel bad for the guy i mean narratively he's in a wheelchair and we don't know how long he's been in a wheelchair and that's kind of a sticking point for me because I'm like if this is new yeah he's being a little bit annoying but you got to feel for him if this is new if he's being wheelchair bound for life which is what i suspect he's yeah. being treated like fucking almost ignored yeah. for a lot of his life which is a lot of the problem as like not as much now because there is a lot less stigma a lot more understanding about disabled people but at the time like, look at how shitty his chair is. That yeah. was the norm. That was a normal chair. It's not a power fucking chair. There were no power chairs. Yeah. Those things are horrible to hoof around in. Yeah. Like, my looking at his arm and seeing psoriasis, it's only because I know it's psoriasis, but, like, it could very well be chafing from having been in the chair, right? Because that mm-hmm. was a reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, he's definitely throwing a tantrum like you fucking read about. But it's probably the height of frustration. He can't... He he is the one that is frightened of this hitchhiker. The hitchhiker cut his arm. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, he... He's... They go to this house. And he... They are all upstairs laughing, having a good time. He can't hardly get through the door. He seemed to be the one that was a little more... Spent a little more time up here at anyway as a kid, too. And mm-hmm. a little more closer with his grandfather and things like that. And more interested in the house itself. So he probably mm-hmm. also views this as, like, 
a bit of a travesty that they're all just worried about swimming and making out and leaving him alone, ignoring him. Yeah. It's not that he needs to be babysat. He's a fully able person that way, but, like, it would be nice to have somebody help him get up the fucking rampless doorway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do agree with you that the fact that he's probably been wheelchair-bound for most of his life because uh, both Pam and Kurt, when they're going to the old swimming hole, just out there by those two old sheds, uh, he... um, they, They say that he was probably carried down there as a kid. When he was small, because oh, okay, they they yeah. couldn't they couldn't remember. This is what I'm talking about. This little pile of it's like bones and feathers all arranged in a specific way. It could be either Leatherface or the Hitchhiker because they're both sort of artsy. But I do I think that that's more of a Leatherface thing to do, yeah. especially the crafting of it all because he crafts his faces and there's a lot in flensing and taking care of hides and things like that. Like that he does. Mm-hmm. There is a huge artistry to that as well mm-hmm. I really think that all of it is, is Leatherface the art stuff you're starting to you're starting to make me agree with you yeah. because we all, maybe it's just because we all know how like what a sweet and sensitive guy Gunnar Hansen was so maybe I just like yeah 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 he's like the sensitive poet but there is but it's also kind of difficult to believe because of the fact that Leatherface himself as a character is so stripped down and simple. It's not even capable of speech, but perhaps capable of art. That's almost beautiful in a way. It is. It is. That makes a lot more mm-hmm. sense, too, even. I'm convinced myself. Even <laughs> deeper. Also, he's got nothing to fucking do. Growing up in the country, I know there's long stretches of time where you have nothing to do. It's probably mm-hmm. why I became such an avid reader. And you, you, you start to get really good at things like you know, pioneer candle making. For what reason? Because you have nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what basically marks the beginning of the end for our heroes. The trespassing? <laughs> the, the trespassing. And, the, and Kirk's fucking wild, wild idea of, they have a generator, gasoline. I'll lend them my guitar as collateral, and then... We'll go to the gas station and bring them back some gas. I'm like, just go get gas. If you, ha-, you know what I mean? Like, I like it was there was. I know that they needed gas, but there was no indication that they were that out th- of they gas. They were that out of yeah. gas, and the gas station's not that far from this place. They can just wait until the gas station gets gas too, because he said it might be this afternoon. It might not be until tomorrow. It's like, well, bummer. We'll have to camp out. They're hippies. They're used to camping out. <laughs> you know what I mean? They can they can sleep a night. They don't seem to have any plans. No one said mm-hmm. they have to get back for anything that I recall. Who the fuck would just like come to this properly and be like, oh yeah, car graveyard? This is probably fine. Um depends on how graveyardy we're talking. You know, if there's blood and shoes and wigs and stuff, I'd be scared and I'd I'd know this I'd recognize this as a serial killer's house. But out in the country, it could be a guy that's a shade tree mechanic and just has a bunch of old cars for parts. Yeah. It's not really that shocking. Nothing is really that untoward. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe it's because I'm not, I'm not a country boy. Yeah. So maybe, so maybe that, like, it all seems so strange to me going up to someone's property like this. Your, your masterclass in country folk is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) That is so true. I, didn't I don't even, blame you. I didn't even think about that. Most people that live in the city and have never really gone to the country outside of a petting zoo 
it, that's the truth. Yeah. So this is I love this because it's like it looks like such a pretty little house. Yeah. This uh, with clearly with this really 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 cool little swing set. There you go. Looks nice. The house does seem really well kept. Maybe that's because uh, the cook is like, don't you have any pride in your home? <laughs> Look what your brother did to the door. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, I do get the fact that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got this cockamamie fucking idea that they're going to get it. It's like they're going to go get some gasoline. But by the time you a human tooth. That would be my cue right now because up until this point, I'm like, this is a very normal country home. The human tooth, run, gone, no. I wouldn't even, no, 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 no. Like, I'd just grab my friend and just zoom. That would be the living end. Yeah, it's so strange to me that they're just making light of it where they're just, oh, yeah, this is probably fine. This is egregious bullshit, too. It's like, we're, we're not... He does better than a lot of other films, you know what I mean? Films that have come past this and... Where people just walk into the country folks' home. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, at least he makes an effort to really announce his presence. Mm-hmm. And doesn't really just walk straight in and mm-hmm. start, like, fucking around with stuff. He doesn't, like, go upstairs unannounced and un- uninvited. Like, th- I've seen films where it's ten times worse. Yeah. I love that back wall. This whole shot is fucking yeah. amazing. And that's where you get the sense of like, yeah, like this isn't the probably the cleanest house in the world, but like there's a lot of it that's really well maintained and even all those skulls just look fucking badass with that red wall. Yeah. Oh my that's God. about this that's about the scariest, coolest thing. And I'd love to repaint the foyer now and get a bunch of skulls because that looks it's one of my Oops, favorite yeah. shots as well. I also oh. like that his uh, time in the house doesn't last very long. Nope, and just like that, an icon is born. Old Gunnar Hansen playing Leatherface. Apparently he got the part because he filled the frame of the door. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's an interesting casting decision. Absolutely. And this, the ferocity, and and it's just popping up. Just like that door getting slammed shut. The slam of the door is what really seals it. Like, this is really, really abrupt and real. Like, it's bad enough. You just saw a guy clumped to death and and bleeding out. Like, it's really, really Mm -hmm. shocking and quick. That whole scene is probably less than a minute. Mm -hmm. But the slam of the door is just like, well, fuck, they're fucked. (laughs) And it also shows that Leatherface knows what he did was just bad in a way he's hiding it from that other girl i don't think he closes that door that often mm-hmm. but he knows there's more and you know he better get this body out of the way it's sort of like you know you have to drag bodies away in golden eye before they <laughs> yeah. yeah um same sort of thing he's hiding the body immediately as fast as he can to not arouse suspicion mm-hmm. or an old pam that tracking shot of her uh, getting off the swing, going towards the house is absolutely beautiful. Just the way that the camera follows underneath it and then focusing, well, it focuses on her butt, but I mean, it's a really good shot in the, the house just enveloping the screen as she walks towards it. Really, really cool. Apparently it captured the imaginations of a lot of different people. Uh, but apparently... Oh, it must, and it's almost soothing in a way because it's very natural mm-hmm. shot. I love uh, this. She's in a room full of bones. She looks up and she's grossed out by the chicken. 
oh my god, a chicken in a cage. The, it's the feathers that are all over the ground that I just think is ridiculously disgusting. And I almost was going to say that this house doesn't look that dirty to me, but then I remembered <laughs> this room, yeah. and this room looks fucking filthy and disgusting, and oh my god. Every manner of bone, I love it. I love, I love this room. I love this room so fucking much. How badly would you want to clean it when you got there, though? Mm, no, that's just that's just that room. You know, it doesn't need a cleaning. This couch is amazing. Yeah, this it, couch. I is mean, amazing. it doesn't look particularly comfortable, but it looks fucking amazing. You can make it comfortable. You can make a feather out of or a feather pillow out of all the like remnants of feathers and stuff. Yeah, waste not, want not. I hate the smell of chicken feathers so much, though. Oh, I couldn't even tell you what that would smell like. Oh, it's disgusting. When you um, are slaughtering chickens and you boil the feathers off mm-hmm. to, like, it softens and loosens them from the skin, and then you can just peel, like, the feathers come off. Um, it is the most disgusting. Hot, wet chicken shit feathers is the most disgusting smell, and that's just what I picture this room smelling like. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. To this day, if there's like one pin feather left on a chicken and it's cooking on a barbecue or in a house, I, I can smell it a mile away. Really? Yes, one tiny pin feather. Yeah, it's disgusting. I love that they really take time to soak in this room for you. To like, just let yeah. you know everything. And she's just like fucking vomiting. The fact that she can't even get up, because I would be like standing immediately. I would want the least amount of stuff touching me as possible. <laughs> I just picture all those horrible chicken feathers stuck to her sweaty skin, you know? Oh, yeah. They must have, like, cleaned her off a couple times because there would be t- way more of them stuck to her. This fucking howl that Leatherface lets out when he's screaming her, this one of the most gifable things in horror, her getting dragged back into that house, the one she lifts up. Yeah. And this, listeners, coming up is one of the most controversial scenes from this film Not in what it shows you, but what people think it shows you. People have maintained for years that you actually see actual penetration of this hook going into Pam's body. I've had really, really avid seasoned horror fans who've watched this movie numerous times argue with me to tell me that you see the hook go through and that, oh, there must be deleted scenes where the hook goes through. Now, to be fair, there is a theatrical cut of this movie... Uh, that we're not watching right now, but there is a theatrical cut of this movie that when Pam uh, is just about to get hoisted onto the hook, it cuts away and we're done with this scene. Um, This is the fully unedited, this is all the fucking footage there is, of this scene. There is no penetration. There is blood on the walls. There is the drain bucket underneath Pam's feet, implying that Yes, that is for blood to fall, but that's it. You get a nice little, like, split-second shot of how sharp that hook is and a shadow coming at it, and then it cuts to the front of them again, mm-hmm. where he's hoisting her and placing her on mm-hmm. the rig. Yeah, and that's because that was the practical nature of that shot. You have uh, the rig on Pam's body away from you. She looks like she's trying to get away. You cut the scene again, now the rig's on her back, and you hoist her up onto the hook, and then she play acts like she's been impaled by the hook. That's filmmaking 101. But your yeah. brain, someone's brain, not my brain, but someone's brain fills it all in and starts telling other people that you get to see the hook go through her. Yeah, as 
as hotly debated as people thinking they see the baby in Rosemary's Baby. It is that. It's really this weird mimetic crap that people get into their head. And then years later, like, uh, you know, they don't actually show you the baby in Rosemary's Baby. And people be like, what? No, they do. I'm like, mm, they don't. And second with... And they can describe it. That's oh, they can describe it. Part. That's crazy. Yeah. It's like, you know, the cloven hoofed goat baby. I'm like, it's not in the movie, guys. <laughs> And same with this, where um, where people uh, just maintain that you see that spike go right through her, and it's the goriest thing in the movie. It's not. This conversation is what makes me, like, sure, he's pouting, and she's trying to sort of, like, half ignore him. I don't know what she plans on doing here. Mm-hmm. If she's just going to sit there in silence, mm-hmm. are they going to go slip into stasis? a little semi-coma and not have to talk until everyone else comes back. This is her brother, for fuck's sakes. Yeah. She does really... She does really um, look like she doesn't have a whole hell of a lot of patience for him in that scene. Oh, that shirt is just fucking... He'd probably be easier to take if they'd have treated him better all his life. That's what I think about Franklin. Yeah. And I think just... um, I think that, like, Franklin's display in this scene really tells me that he's aware of how he acts. He's aware of it, but he, he really wants you to understand. Right. And he's, and he, he's really just trying to dissuade his own fears. Cause that's one of the things that, that I don't think the other people are really being sensitive to the fact is that hitchhiker really scared him, really yeah. scared him. And he left blood on the wall and he burned his, uh, Franklin's picture from Franklin's perspective all of that misfortune from picking up that hitchhiker befell him and now that they can't find their friends and he just wants to go you know like like and and she is being very dismissive and short with them and and even like the way that she delivers that line where she's like what now it's yeah it's like like Shut the fuck up. That sort of reaction that he's gotten all of her life out of her now, something's very seriously disturbing him, and he's feeling very seriously dejected, and it's that same sort of like, oh, well, what do you want now? What yeah. The fuck? Her, her excuse is like, she's just tired, but she probably, yeah, she, in her she's mind. probably given him that excuse all his life. Yeah, she's like, I'm just tired. I'm just tired, Franklin. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Franklin. Poor Franklin. So... Poo poodle as people find Franklin annoying. That's just mean of you. You're just another fucking Sally. You're another Sally, or you're another Pam. Kurt was kind of a dick to him too, very dismissive. Yeah. I was gonna say Jerry was kind of okay to him. I was like, not really though, because he was kind of teasing him because like, oh, he's coming, he's gonna get you, he's gonna get you. I think that's a little more fun though. That's a little more yeah. normal. I feel like that's he's more like like teasing with equals as opposed yeah. to like actual bullying. Yeah. Exactly. Now, this has the nice touch with uh, Jerry here in his majestic fucking shirt. Um, he find like, it, like him going to the house, I'd be like, he has no evidence to support that they're there, except for the fact that they left the blankets there. Yeah. So that, see, right then and there, this is a good fucking move. Like, this is so smart. It's a little tiny thing that convinces me that he can't backpedal now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise you'd be like, why are you going to the house? Why are you going to the house? I'm like, because he thinks his friends are in there. Now, he does kind of maintain, you guys are just joking around and stuff like that a little too long. 
but he Not does funny. hear he does kind of hear giggling and noising uh, noising noises from the inside so maybe they are hiding from him and it's the sort of thing that they could do because they were going to go swimming they're having a fun day of this even though they're kind of stuck out there sort of for now and it's a hot annoying day they're trying to make the best of it mm-hmm. and the four of them have probably hung out all kinds of times and done stuff like this you mm-hmm. know take off on one another be silly I like that um, Jerry actually, whereas Kurt like um, trips into that uh, room because of the fact there's that ramp there. I like that Jerry takes the the time to like look down so he doesn't trip. He's also sort of like on higher alert where no one else was the first time people came into this house. Yeah. What do you think this is all about? This has been the most confusing thing to me ever. I don't understand. Is Pam alive? Half alive. I mean, how would you feel getting a big thing through your spine? <laughs> I'm surprised she could sit up. Because, like, I was always, I was always confused. I'm like, I don't know. Is she dead? Is she alive? Or what's going on here? It's not exactly like the, you know, nerve action of a headless chicken. Headless mm-hmm. chicken races. Yeah. I know you've never had a headless chicken race. No. But it's there's a lot of motion there. It's maybe a similar sort of thing that they're mm-hmm. trying to get at. I think that she's semi-alive. This, I love this sequence so much. This really drives home the fact that Leatherface is terrified right now. People keep coming into their home. Yeah. And they are a family of secrets. Predominantly, more than anything, I mean, they're grave robbers. Um, I mean, they've definitely killed before, but I'd say much like Ed Gein, they're more grave robbers than anything, uh, with also some killing. Those fucking baby teeth, man, I'll tell you. But anyway, um, but like that worried expression and the fact that these kids keep coming, he doesn't know how many there are. Yeah, if there's going to be more, if he's going to get in trouble, like... Yeah. He seems yeah. to get in trouble a lot. You know, him, there's a little bit of duality between him and Franklin there. Yeah. Yeah, getting like kind of bullied and treated like dirt. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, it's really Leatherface trying to just like think about what he is going to do. Do I wait for more? Do I go and see if there's more? And Sort of like when you discover a cockroach or something? Yeah, absolutely. Even though even though like a lot of people have interpreted this film and it's very easy and I agree with this argument of the fact that it is very much the idea of people from the industrialized world coming to a place uh, that has been left behind by the industrialized world and now suffering because of uh, new technologies has impoverished their family. And these kids representing that kids, like they're in their twenties or at least, but yeah. Um, um, but it, it's really that scene that drives it home for me more than the fact that, from the Sawyer family's perspective in this film, at the very least, you could say that they are killing in self-defense. Yeah, because people are basically invading, invading their home, and once it gets to the point where. Um, more kids are coming to their property, they can't let them leave. They, they can't let Sally and Franklin leave after what they've seen. No, not at all. They yeah. need to kill them. Unfortunately, that's just going to draw more. Luckily, they're cannibals, so that's not an entirely bad thing. Mm-hmm. But if they're really lucky and cross their fingers, they might be able to just slaughter these kids and no one will come looking for them. If they're really lucky... I'm sure that's happened before because of the pile of cars in the back underneath that ghillie net. 
Mm-hmm. This argument, I feel, is very authentic. Like, just just the idea of um, Sally and Franklin. Sally wanting to go and look for them and wanting Franklin to give her the flashlight. Franklin not wanting her to go at all um, because he's scared. Either And then her not wanting to bring Franklin with him because she he would slow her down. Um, and then just the fact that he won't give the flashlight and they're just fighting like this. Um God. And know, he's right. Like, what if they did come back and we're not here and they're going to go traipsing around in the dark? They should have gone to look for them before the sun went down. But. Absolutely. But definitely, that's what Jerry was going to do. The sun was already setting when Jerry said, I'm going to go get them. Yeah. And and there was no reason to say... There was no reason to say to, to not to go, right? Or They've got 30 to... minutes of dusk. They sat there through every minute of dusk not doing anything. Mm, that's true. That's very, very true. At this point... You know, Sally's like at the peak of frustration and he wants to, Franklin wants to go with her. But then I feel like this is super dickish of Sally where she's walking at a pace that Franklin, like for fuck's sake, like they're in the deep brush right now. Like he's in that shitty wheelchair. They're in the deep brush. He's in a chair and she's probably been this sort of asshole all of his life. And mm-hmm. now is not the time to be a fucking bitch. Like, I, I don't know, like we might be the first people that are like defending Franklin this much because I've never heard anyone defend this guy's character. Um, I think that it comes a lot from uh, ableist theory, though. I think that I'd love to hear what Derek Newman still has to say about Franklin. I would really love to hear him talk about this. Um, not so much. You don't get it so much with Friday the 13th Part 2 because no, no. he's um, a very able and very he's athletic he's des- yeah. he's he's a like he's athletic he's a desirable prospect for a woman um you know what i mean he's treated very equal and unfortunately pointing out that he only recently ended up in the chair and is pretty sure he'll get out of it soon yeah so that's a little bit you know weak but dealing with a character that's been disabled for his life and treated like this for his life, it's it's very heart-wrenching to me on many, many levels, especially my uh, grandmother dealt a lot with the developmentally delayed. She drove the disabled bus for oh, school. Okay, 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 okay. And so I did meet a lot of the kids that took that bus and a lot of the adults because mm-hmm. she did drive out adults up to appointments and stuff like that. Sort of like a pre-paratranspo, paratranspo thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a hilarious throwback because a sign when I was a really little kid on top of her van said uh, retarded children. And then they changed the sign to say yeah. caution children. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say that's you can't say that anymore. Jesus. Especially on top of a big sign on your on your vehicle. It says retarded children. Wow. <laughs> and again, we have the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And here we go. A death via chainsaw. And you can see the sparks where he's glancing the chainsaw off of the metal of the chair, which it's, it's such a little tiny thing. It's like blink and you'll miss it. But oh, I yeah. love that because it's like oh, that yeah. won't happen with a regular person unless you've got a big metal plate in your head. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. like that. I wish that there was a little bit more of that. But hey, mm-hmm. the fact that they caught that, I, I love that. Yeah. 
of course, that speaks to the physicality and the sort of lightning in a bottle nature of this whole film anyway. Lightning in a bottle, and it is that. Yeah. It is definitely that. Um, I like this running through the bush. Um, there isn't, you know, you got that sort of archetypal girl running from the killer through the woods and it's usually like a lot of bouncing boobs and panting and stuff like that yeah. where this is absolutely not that and it's no. one of the very first ones yeah absolutely yeah. again that launches a thousand ships yeah. right but never really quite did it this well and i think that there's a lot of things going on first of all um marilyn burns playing sally is absolutely amazing second of all um she legitimately was getting caught in this deep, thick brush, like like you would, because like, it's very like, realistic. Like you would, especially um, there's a, there's a couple of sequences here where her hair gets really caught, and those were legitimate scenes where she couldn't get out of it because they did this scene over and over and over again. Um, and uh, Gunnar Hansen in the book Chainsaw Confidential talked about how the fact that like he would be easily able to overtake her because of just his stride was so much bigger than hers and. And, uh, you know, she was getting... I like the little run he has to adopt to make it look like he's still running fast, but he's yeah. still not catching up. Yeah. And the second thing that's really working in this scene that I don't think is talked about enough is uh, her wardrobe. The, like, it, the white pants with that blue top, with the lighting, the night sky, it pops so fucking great. It looks fucking fantastic. You know what I mean? Oh, there's nothing nicer in like um, Italian horror cinema than a girl in a white nightgown in a in a dark house running. Oh you know what God. I mean? Like yeah. that's a beautiful scene. You see it a lot in Regency horror, and it's the vision of old Gothic romance novels and stuff like that. Gothic horror novels. It's that imagery sticks with you. So this is at the time that updated version of that oh, imagery. Oh yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. I mean, a lot of people couldn't walk through that sort of thicket without getting tangled, so it's a fucking miracle she ran through it. Really. Yeah, absolutely. That's fucking... <laughs> Look what I did to that door! I love... The, the whole upstairs of this house is a fucking mystery to me. It's, it's a mystery to most people, it seems. It's awfully bare. Yeah. Uh, old grandpa. 108 years old, the character is. Um... Played by uh, a 20-year-old actor. Why do you think that they got a young kid to play... A, why not try to get an old guy? No idea. Maybe they wanted to play with some latex. Maybe they felt that they didn't want to involve somebody older that wouldn't understand what they're doing. You know, trying to explain fucking rock music to somebody who's 60 years old sometimes can be a chore trying to explain what you're trying to do with this film to mm -hmm. one of your grandparents or whoever you're going to cast mm -hmm. for this. I mean, that could be dicey. It's probably just a lot easier to get somebody who's willing to do it. No, that's a really good point. Because you're like, hey, Uncle Stu, you want to be in my film? Oh, yeah, of course. I'll do anything to help you out. you got to club a girl to death in the head with a mallet. <laughs> surrounded by bones and we're going to be filming for weeks in the stinking hot and he'd be like no that's all I need to know forget it <laughs> <laughs> this is always crazy to me because this starts a chase sequence that we don't watch the entire thing mercifully it's going to cut to just about when Sally reaches her next destination but it really drives home the fact that this gas station could not have been that far I know like, right a mile 
up uh, like uh, like less than a kilometer. Well, driving, and it could be like around a cul-de-sac. So she's just running through the bush straight through. As the crow flies, it's a lot closer, maybe. Yeah. And it took them a bit to drive around to that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But either way, I also really like that it cements the idea that everyone's in on it and everyone's safe. The only safe house, quote-unquote, is absolutely abandoned and has evidence that they've been in there. Every other house around here is not safe. Yeah, absolutely. I like that in uh, future incarnations of this, this story where you got neighbors in trailers that are way away from the house that are still involved and not safe places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost like a, a conspiratorial nature of these back uh, backwoods towns. Which and happens st- in House of a Thousand Corpses. Absolutely, absolutely. Everyone's kind of in on it. Really, really, really cool. Or everyone's related. Yeah. I remember, like, for the first little while, I wasn't even sure that this was the fucking gas station. It was. It's not until she gets comes in, around the corner here. Yeah, it's yeah. Not until yeah, and then I'm like, oh, oh, really? Because she, but like, imagine running that entire length with that fucking chainsaw wielding mongoloid chasing you. <laughs> oh, it's an, it's so sad. Um, in that she probably recognized that it was the the gas station and felt instantly relief and saved Mm -hmm. and she's had that ripped away from her very very soon but us as the audience are sort of feeling that too on our first viewing being like oh okay well maybe she'll get some help here and we have that ripped away from us but we're already being steeled that nothing is safe right we've had them go into the house and be slaughtered um, when you're thinking they're going for help and we've had that rug pulled out of our or from under our feet over and over again already so right here we're full of nothing but tension and this whole scene is just like all you can do is worry what's going to happen next yeah and and believe me if you're not aware of some tropes that exist in hillbilly horror and that's not a knock against this movie because this movie did it first yeah you don't know that the cook or the old man, or how, he's not. Uh, I think he's credited as old man. Uh, he's referred to as the cook a lot of the times. He becomes Drayton. Yeah, he becomes Drayton, in, in the, but he doesn't have that name yet. By this, he's still just an unnamed character. Yeah. Um, played by old Jim Cito. Now, this character of the cook is my absolute favorite member of the Sawyer family. As a kid, as a younger person, obviously Leatherface, yeah. that's who I like the best. But this guy exhibits such a fascinating duality where he's constantly reigning in his madness. He's constantly trying to make himself feel better by convincing himself that he's a kind person, uh doesn't really want anyone to suffer. Can't uh can't like but killing is just something you got to do. Right? So it's this weird duality where he's tender and also as brutal as his brothers. It's also really like cemented in that, and I've used the word cemented too many times today. So this is where we do some editing, folks. <laughs> he's like the mother and the father and the cook and the cleaner and everyone's best friend and everyone's enemy. He's got to hold that family together, and the pressure must be just fucking overwhelming. Mm hmm. 
I kind of wish Franklin would have had someone like him in his life <laughs> to help him and understand him a little better. The way that he helped understand somebody like uh, Leatherface. Yeah. So the pressure must be just overwhelming. And that's part of just whole, trying to rein that in. But here's where you really start to see that family um, resemblance between him and the hitchhiker. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of these little broom shots aren't all that convincing. But uh, eventually he gets to it. Uh, as the story goes, when the uh, actors were performing this scene, he just didn't want to hit her. And so and, and just couldn't bring himself to hit her. The scene that preceded this too, I don't know if they were filmed back to back, but they were, it was all really long and arduous. Oh yeah. All of this. And at first, yeah, not wanting to do any of this yeah. and things going on way too long and things yeah. like that, oh my, which is yeah. in, from my point of view, brilliant filmmaking. Yeah. Torture them fucking actors, you know? Yeah. But mm-hmm. it worked and it got yeah. us what we get here. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Eventually, uh, Marilyn Burns, who plays Sally, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but um, she did eventually yell at him, hit me, just do it. Because it was it was coming from a place of like, if you don't hit me, we're going to be here all night. So just do it. Yeah. Ugh, a dirty old rag in the mouth. It's stage dirt. Stage dirt. <laughs> Theatrical dirt. You know, given what I know about the shoestring budget of this film, they found it. They definitely found that. Like, <laughs> on I the, made theatrical uh, dirt out of um, you know those like little sugar wafer treat chocolate things. I do, yeah. Yeah, if you take those and and crush them up, they make like almost like a topsoil looking thing, and then you um, take fudgios, Ooh. yeah, and crush up fudgios. So if somebody has to eat handfuls of dirt, Mm -hmm. you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. This scene here, uh, I love this so fucking much. Like, I I love this character so much. The idea that he goes back to turn the lights off. Well, he's had to fucking take care of everyone all of his life. You know what I mean? Of course, he's only... I'm the only person that... Closes the drapes and turns off lights and makes her tops don't drip around here and the fridge door is closed. So, I mean, I get him. Oh, yeah. Cost of electricity, enough to make a man, drive, run a man out of business, He's, he says. He, it's true. And that's where his mindset is all of the time. The only time he gets a chance to relax is really having a nice meal with his family, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like this scene. Um, oh, you yeah. could start a film here. You could, couldn't yeah. you? It's really, really good. And, and again, what he's doing to her and like prodding her really hard. And he's saying, I hope you're not uncomfortable down there. And he's just fucking jabbing at her with that thing. And it's like, take it easy. You got nothing to worry about. We'll be there soon. Bam, bam, bam. It's so layered. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it says to me a lot of, like, he's done this lots before. Too many times before. So oh, yeah. she's fucked. She is fucked, fucked, fucked. Very, very terrifying. Because he's probably give these platitudes to screaming bagfuls of women before. Yeah. Women, yeah. men, doesn't really matter. Yeah, I don't think I don't think they're really discerning, but... Fully no, um, interchangeable. Yeah, yeah. Because there's not, um, it doesn't, there's not a, a sexuality to any of them. It seems like it's all been bled out to, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, because it's a household of, of men and this sadistic obsession with 
torture and death and cannibalism has it's all just everything else is just washed out and their matriarch is preserved like a totem upstairs so like there's nothing like giving loving or sexualized about her whatsoever Mm -hmm. who knows what their life when she was alive was like but yeah men and women both are simply food right yeah yeah absolutely I love the look of that scene beating him in front of the headlights Mm -hmm. and again like you start to really establish this is the first time that you see any of the members of this family interacting with each other and I'm wondering did you ever do you ever did you ever hear anybody seeing this movie and before this scene not really know that any one of these characters would have been related to each other because you see the hitchhiker by themselves first you see Leatherface by himself first and you see the cook predominantly by themselves and they only all come together at the end of this film do you think that do you think that anyone would have been really surprised maybe at least maybe not with Leatherface because you know that the cook is bringing her back or doing something to her but but the hitchhiker do you think well there's I'm of two minds entirely because you can't assume things right yeah yeah exactly you can't assume things so a part of me wants to be like oh yeah that would be totally shocking because you can't assume things another part of me is like well even at the beginning when the hitchhiker says I live up the road you know that he lives around here so he's probably related you just go ahead and assume these things yeah. and anyone that lives anywhere within you know a kilometer in this area is bound to be related so you just sort of make those like mental leaps of judgment, right? So on on one half, I want to be like, um, yeah, people would have been surprised because they wouldn't have assumed these things. Yeah. And then the other half of me wants to believe that, or like has lived in the countryside and stuff like that, and knows many families that operate with the same sort of like closeness, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is uh, where you get a sense of, of the the cook's role in this, and the the fact that he would be the, the oldest brother, clearly, mm-hmm. and the authority figure, at least in this scene, because it seems like the next time we see him, the brothers, not Leatherface, but the hitchhiker doesn't really listen to him as much as when he's got that uh, piece of broom in his hand, because I think he's afraid that he's going to get his head cracked in. Well, he's also like a little less crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Like Drayton, which I I just prefer to use his name instead of calling him the old man, because I always think of the old man as grandpa, and I get it all confused in my head. Gotcha. So like, he could definitely get killed off by the hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. The hitchhiker's way crazier. He's probably way tougher. Like Drayton's getting older. He needs that stick in his hand to sort of level the playing field, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the definitely the definitely is that now. Um, Originally in the script, now this, the thing about the, the script for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it was getting written and rewritten almost on the day. Uh, uh, Toby uh, and, and others would just get these ideas and then add stuff or, or get rid of stuff. Apparently they had a shot list, but but like they made the shot list to get the money off their backs, but like they never intended to really even follow it. But uh, apparently in early drafts, there was dialogue for Leatherface. Oh really? Yeah, that's adorable. What would he have said? Um, apparently, it, it was supposed to be very primitive, and and very difficult to understand. But in these scenes, he would have been answering 
the cook or Drayton, however you want to say it. Um, it wasn't. You can keep singing if it makes you feel better. I will. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't that sophisticated as in like the hills run red, but it was definitely more of a language as opposed to he just squeals and, and, and stuff, whinnies yeah. and and grunts and, and and stuff like that what i also find interesting about this scene we kind of gloss, glossed over but i do want to make mention of the fact that when sally is uh, tarp is removed from her head the, the hitchhiker genuinely seems surprised that it's her and and he's delighted because he says, oh, I thought you was in a hurry. So that really drives home the point that, yeah, this could have been anybody. They don't care. It's yeah. not like they even thought that. The Hitchcock never thought he would see them again. Exactly. The fact that he's surprised, although isn't surprised that there's a girl tied up in the fucking living room under a tarp. Yeah, he's just surprised who it is. Like, yeah. whoa, what a small world. It's kind of that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> this... Uh, this always makes me kind of wonder, like, why do they keep putting Grandpa up and downstairs? Why don't you just leave him down in the level where everyone else is? Well, he wants to be upstairs with his wife. Oh, uh, you know Why what? would you want to keep him separated like mm, that? That's that... horrible that you would even question that, Wes. I am disturbed about how defensive you are of Grandpa. Well, he shouldn't be. Look at him. He needs a little defending. Like, it's crazy to me. You want to know something? I find of all the looks, like, Grandpa is definitely the creepiest looking. Totally. Yeah, he totally is. And it's one of the more memorable things. Like, when you say gifable, uh, I, just me being old, I suppose, I, I try and transplant that word with memorable. Oh. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And that's what people are doing. But there's so many people that, like have seen the gift of Sally being dragged back in the door or Pam, Pam, rather, yeah, Pam. Um, a million times and have no idea where it's from or who it is or why it's important. Okay. It's just, it's a guy dragging a girl in a door and it boils it down to a very strange place to, for me where grandpa is just as memorable. I wish there were things he did that were gifable so mm. that it would be like as like steeped into the popular culture well, as Leatherface pulling Pam back in the door is. It's funny that you should say that because I submit that what someone and listeners, if you're out there and you want to make something that'll make me really, really happy, take this scene that we're watching right now of grandpa sucking on Sally's finger. And right now we're going to get a little grandpa dance. So like right here, can we can we put that to music? Like him just doing like a little like a little thing and loop it, loop it to a song. The grandpa dance. Yeah, someone make Wes a gift. Please make me a gift because let me tell you, um, I would I would totally like do like a little funky music, make it ironically happy, and have Grandpa do a little Grandpa dance because like I'm taking notes. That's my next move at the club, just like that. The like Grandpa dance. The glee, the happiness. Yeah. I saw a similar Grandpa dance in the film Header just recently which I won't get into that film because we're not watching that film yeah but it's a very similar grandpa dance mm-hmm. for almost similar reasons absolutely the next most memorable thing is grandpa wielding the, the uh, mallet yeah old John Duggan 20 years old that he was playing this role great little actor because he really dials in old decrepit grandpa yeah uh, this is another amazing shot this entire this starts the dinner sequence one of the most famous scenes i was gonna say in this movie but i'm gonna submit in horror um just her tied to this crazy chair with those arm like arms in the armchair i love it (laughs) oh grandpa's sliding poor grandpa someone help grandpa um 
Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, and this really uh, the, the dynamic of the of the cook, um, like he seems kind of into it, like into the fact that that like the hitchhiker and Leatherface are howling, laughing, mocking her and shit like that. But then, and he kind of like looks and is like, yeah, yeah, kind of fun, right? But then he kind of reins it in again. He's like, shut up, shut up, you're all acting like a pack of hounds or whatever. And Sally is appealing to him the most. The other two, she writes off completely as insane, but she's still addressing the cook, saying, you can make them stop. He seems to be the most sane. He seems to be the most regular. He has some sort of job. He runs the gas station. Mm -hmm. So it's all these little small slivers of normalcy she sees in him. She just doesn't know him very well, I suppose. And she's also surrounded by somebody she knows is fucking insane Mm -hmm. and this man wearing a mask that is now painted with makeup Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't see him making himself up but it's that hint of the Leatherface crossdresser that I like so much Mm -hmm. the idea that Leatherface himself is a blank and whoever Leatherface is is who the mask is yeah whoever he wants to dress up as also his having to do dual roles like the slaughtering is such a traditionally man's job but then he has to do a lot of like the cleaning and decorating around the house i'm sure Mm -hmm. you know and that's typically a woman's role he's being probably completely desexualized all of his Mm -hmm. life anyway too so it doesn't matter what gender role he decides Mm -hmm. to choose whatsoever which probably freaks her out even more. Yeah. Yeah, he does have this this look on him, Drayton, of this, like you said, like reining it in and like enjoying it and, and like not enjoying it and trying to like stop the others or calm the others down or make them shut up or behave yeah. a certain way. But he's also into this, like, like he feels like he can. He wants to be a kid and play these kid games, but he also needs to be the father figure of some, to a certain, mm-hmm. c- certain extent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always bust on these movies like for these extended screaming sequences but for some reason this doesn't bother me at all which is crazy because like this is more bothersome i think than the screaming in cujo i i agree with you i agree i agree with you um all these eyeball shots are fucking amazing they're all pickup shots they did this after the filming was completely done and it's remarkably clear and so close up this movie looks amazing it's very hitchcockian yeah yeah um, and it's something that is sort of like an artistic thing that you don't really expect. And here, you're getting a lot of like really wild audio too. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Up until now, we've had sort of like a welfare water phone, I think. I don't know what they were using for the sounds in the background. It wasn't a water phone, I don't think, because mm-hmm. you can get a lot better sound of a water phone. But it was sort of like hitting a bucket with water in it and swirling it around, that sort of weird sound. Mm-hmm. But here, they've got this like cock cacophony oh my god cacophony cacophony yeah see this is where we do some editing because <laughs> cacophonous that's the word i wanted uh-huh. sound that's swelling and it's got like broken instruments is what it sounds like it's fucked mm-hmm. along with those shots of the eyeball like it's just absolutely terrifying yeah yeah now one of the things about this film uh, that gets talked to a lot, and we're going to get into it for uh, for sure when we talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, is the fact that how Toby Hooper and some people really envision this as a black comedy. Um, 
I've never, ever gotten the vibe. There are things in it that could be seen as funny, but I don't really find any of it funny, with the exception of this scene that we're about to uh, enjoy, where they're convinced that Grandpa, which is basically, gang, if you've never seen this movie, and how dare you change that, I hope you're changing it right now. But Well, yeah, they should be watching along with us. But uh, it, like, it's like, imagine Mr. Burns, but more pathetic. So they're trying to get him to hammer Sally's head like she were a cow. And that's how that's how death is treated in this movie. Death is treated so fast, so indifferent, like you're slaughtering animals. Yeah. And even though that this scene can be viewed as quite torturous, for the most part, this is a psychological torture on Sally in this scene. They don't actually physically do anything to her until this moment and the only reason why this is arduous is because grandpa isn't strong enough to even hold the hammer anymore it's nothing worse than somebody that's inept at doing something that needs to like like you know you wouldn't want uh someone who's never done a tattoo before to tattoo you oh that's sort of what this is like i've had a um someone trying to put an IV in me once that was no good and I have really small veins and they're slippery rubbery veins so they had a hard time so I liken it to that in a, in a certain way where it's just like god damn it if you can't do it get someone who can yeah because it's painful and this is psychological torture entirely mm-hmm. and and but like they hold grandpa in such awe and like look at the cook like see how he leaves the room walks away like he doesn't want to watch it but then comes back and then goes away again and then comes back it's so brilliant but see how he just kind of like i'm thinking that he has something that he needs to do like have you ever been the host at a dinner party like he is and you you want to be engaged in conversation or you need to see whatever it is that is going on or you want to have a, a taste of whatever you've just put out mm-hmm. but you need to hover and go back to the kitchen and do other stuff i think that's part of that yeah but also maybe not wanting to be right in the stink of it maybe and they're not they're not kidding about like i gotta open up in the morning it is the morning <laughs> so, they've been there all night uh that dinner sequence um you think is taking place at night Sally. It's such a relief when she busts through that window oh and he realizes it's daylight. It's such a fucking good moment. This fucking sequence is terrifying. Just like the manic way that the hitchhiker is chasing her and fucking here comes Leatherface. Like, holy shit. Reminds right? me of the beginning of Pieces of Talent, actually. Oh, really <laughs> that's a good call. This also kind of seems like she can barely, like, her legs fucked up, like... And he definitely can chase her, but like, look at it. He's like fucking slashing at her back with that straight razor. Like he's having fun with it too. Again, oh, yeah. and that's part of like the the having grandpa kill is just a nice family thing. Like they have, probably haven't had grandpa come down to kill, and Drayton watching them have their fun. The brothers are getting a real kick out of this. They're all like excitable today, until now. Boom. <laughs> Really oh, yeah. good dummy, eh? I it's think they really did really good, good for like shoestring budget and it's just basically a scarecrow, but they did very, very well. There's a cut sequence of the hitchhiker close up on the hitchhiker's face after this that uh, never made it into the final cut of the movie. But um, the actor, what he did was uh, there was a rock on the road and he laid his head on the rock and it made his jaw look like it was completely broken. Yeah, there's there's something that's been gift as well as the cutscenes 
showing the actor on the road with the blood on his face. Mm -hmm. I've seen that several times. Yeah. I always think this is fucking crazy. Like, this one trucker that, like, is now just involved and fucks up. I love that. Like, he just, like, pings him in the head with the wrench. And then this chainsaw going down. And this is, like, the most um, normal noise you ever hear out of Leatherface. It sounds like a genuine ah Because it pain. is a genuine ah of pain, apparently, and yeah. fear and... and... Because he almost cut, he thought he'd cut it through his leg. Yeah, he really did. Uh, and I and I, I love this fucking scene. I love like these the, at the end, like these random people just kind of getting involved. Because mm-hmm. that one trucker is still running, like he's gone. Like whatever happened to that dude? The first time I showed this film to my friend Stacy, who also lived out in the country, and we, like we both at times had this whole like sort of feeling offended like is that what people think of people who live in the country yeah you know that sort of asshole attitude that we sort of picked up from that yeah. from hellbilly horror um but the first time watching it with her she was like you know what i'm impressed of the most about this movie i'm like what she's like there was a black guy that didn't get killed first and i was like <laughs> well yeah true and it's really absolutely true and just as she is getting away it's just like this frantic laughter and Boom, one of the most iconic shots in the history of fucking cinema. I'm not even going to say horror because that seems reductive. Leatherface dancing in the sunlight, waving that chainsaw around. That convinces you that this is never going to end. No, just this absolutely frantic madness. Just so fucking cool. I get chills watching it. Um, I do every time. Every time, yeah. and because because and you know what, I almost feel in this the same uh, deference that they have for Grandpa. I feel deference for this film, where I'm watching something, and when it gets to that moment, I feel like I'm watching something so important, like so important to horror fans, to cinema fans, to the art of filmmaking. This movie deserves all the praise it gets and people who don't get it i fucking feel bad for them yeah like that gentleman that a week ago was saying something about it's nice for what it is um that's an interesting attitude in a way and it makes me think that that person maybe doesn't understand filmmaking or doesn't take things away from films like people who enjoy taking things away from film do they can't watch something and relate to it properly is that what watching films is nowadays? Not to relate to things, but to have something put on like Dance Monkey Dance so that you can be entertained? Or Cinema has changed so much over in 40 years since this movie came out, 41 mm-hmm. years. Cinema has changed. I was going to correct you because it's a year older than I am. Yes, yes, yes. Cinema has changed so much. And... Look at the release of this film. Look at the release of movies like this. And people wonder why, like, are we ever going to remember certain horror films that get made in the last 10 years like we do these ones? I almost am hesitant to be, I'm not a futurist, I don't know. But very few, very, but very, very few. few. And, and, and it's because this movie sat at the drive-ins forever. This movie made its, like, we used to have time to let these movies really sit. To yeah. really... It wasn't like three months later. And everyone talked about them too. Yeah, it wasn't... It, like, you know, nowadays, a movie hits the multiplexes. If you haven't seen it within the first month or two months, 
it's probably going to be out of the theaters by then. And then you got to wait till Blu-ray or digital or it catches on Netflix. But then there's a million other things to watch. And so it basically becomes a Facebook post. Oh, yeah, I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Like no one has time to really sit and think about these films anymore. No one has time to go and discover these in a video store. No one has that time anymore. And it's just because so much gets released at such a fast pace. And it's it's literally like... Okay, there's my movie. Where's the next movie? Oh, okay, great. And uh, well, now I'm done with that movie. Where's my other movie? Two movies. I want three movies. You know, and 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 you know, back in the day, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was not a franchise. Was not prequels. Was not action figures and video games. Yeah. It was one film. It was an hour and twenty three minutes of your life, and it just captured an entire generation's imagination. And through that allowed future generations to enjoy it as well and like it's such a conflation of rare circumstances there was so much valuable conversation happening too at the time because people did talk constructively about horror film and a lot more people watched it too so like it wasn't just like my parents being some weird adams family at all because they weren't they're pretty normal people but they did watch a lot of film and everyone they knew had seen it so they did have conversations long lengthy valuable conversations about this where now looking at like even me i don't want to fucking talk to anyone about films i watch because i don't want to hear them regurgitate wikipedia i don't want to hear them and their shitty fucking attitudes about things they didn't like and watched for a joke or on a dare anyway so like i don't really want to have conversations with people about the films i watch where back then that was an interesting and fun thing to do and a valuable thing to do where maybe not so much now absolutely at the time this film made boffo box office over 30 million dollars uh, there was a lot of like problems with people getting paid, and like that's a whole thing. And if you guys are interested in like the background of this uh, film at all, I, there's tons of great things that you could read. This movie came out at the absolute right time. The mood of the country had shifted, the United States and the world. Things were gloomier. Things were more dismal. That 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 sort of like sheen of the and hopefulness that started in the beginning of the '60s and really died by the end of the the '60s and into the 1970s made films like this and Night of the Living Dead and Last House on the Left. People coming like, back with stories from war too. Yeah, from war. You know, like Rosemary's Baby, like all of these super serious darker horror films that were coming out and Texas Chainsaw Massacre with this amazing title and all this kind of stuff just like conflating into this experience that people kept with them. And um, I just wanted to read something. Speaking of really good books on this. Uh, Speaking of really good books on this, there's a book out there, gang, and I urge you, if you're interested in this film a lot, or at all, or if you're interested in uh, what I would consider like the, the, the absolute word, on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I recommend reading Chainsaw Confidential. It was a book written by Gunnar Hansen, and there's an audiobook version of it too that's read to you by Gunnar Hansen. So if you just want to have the idea of... of just, or hear that teddy bear voice. Yeah, just being wrapped up in his big strong arms while he just reads you a story, because that's how I feel. Or drags you back in a house. Well, there's that too. Um, he closes off his book. Now, uh, I've... I've uh, it's a truncated version of it because it's quite lengthy, but it basically goes like this. And this is Gunnar Hansen's thoughts on why he thinks Texas Chainsaw Massacre was so successful and became such a big message movie for 
the horror world. And I quote, It was the script, the directing, the art directing, the cinematography and documentary feel, the sound design, and the editing. It was the family of monsters, and this new monster, Leatherface. It was the acting. It was the heat. It was the smell. It was the frenzied insanity of the dinner scene. It was the overall misery. It was the fact that no one had worked on a film before and would do anything to get this film done. It was the title. Take any of these elements away and the whole thing falls apart. Or just becomes a lesser film. But yeah, he's totally right. Lightning in a bottle. We said it mm-hmm. earlier in the show and that's exactly what this was. And it's not a wonder that no one can really replicate it because you just can't. Yeah. And even though there's remakes and prequels. Oh, and a whole and, genre. And, and a whole a whole genre that was springboarded off of this film. They never quite made this film again. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that is a testament to what this film is. And I think it's a testament that what makes great horror can't really be quantified. You can only talk about the recipe that made it work. But you can't talk really about the finished product because this movie just makes me feel a certain way. And maybe it's because I've been told my whole life that it was important. But when you're told your whole life that something's important and then you sit down and you watch it and you walk away from being like, yeah, that feels important. You're not disappointed by something like that. That's Mm. crazy to me. It is crazy to me. And hence why you got so uptight hearing about that gentleman who likes... Someone can like the remake better. I, I, It's fair. To be like, yeah, it's slow, it's boring, it's stupid, and it's okay for what it is, and it's old. And that's why it's like no good. You're talking to the wrong fucking people. (laughs) Because I love Hillbilly Horror. I've watched quite a lot of it, and I really enjoy it. I seek it out specifically, and I'm excited for future titles. I want to devour anything I've missed along my way from this to now, because this was really one of the very first Hillbilly horror type films that I'd watched um, that didn't really you know like that wasn't just based in the country that was about people living in the country and the specific problems they face now had I not watched this up until today I would be just as impressed as I've ever been and it is really one of the absolute best hillbilly horror films Mm -hmm. ever 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 even taking like all the stupid fucking hayride and I can't even name the hillbilly horror that I've watched, like Charlie's Farm, I guess. You throw that in there. As far as newer ones, the upcoming The Barn. I can't even think of them all because there's lots of them. <laughs> but, like, it's still head and shoulders above any of them in filmmaking and storyline and character development and casting, in effects, in just overall fucking environment. It's immersive. Mm-hmm. It's truly immersive. Well, good news, Lydia. Good news for you and good news for our listeners. One, you got through another commentary episode. Just barely. Yeah, I did. And then next week, we're going to be doing it all again with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. We'll, yeah, we'll and talk. I'll be probably like giggling and clapping my hands and just so happy. Because, like, you know, there are scenes in this that I'd say, yes, are definitely black comedy. Even when he slams the door the first time, that's humorous. There are a lot of things that Drayton says that are humorous. Almost everything that the hitchhiker says is humorous. 
So I can sort of be like, yeah, yeah, it is black comedy to a certain point. Um, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a laugh riot. Yep. This is an absolute, uh, many years later, Toby Hooper would pick up his characters again. Uh, dig it up. Dig, dig it up. And there's a massive tonal shift. And uh, we'll get into that. We'll get into the difference between a movie coming out in the 70s and the difference between a movie coming out in the 80s. We'll talk a little bit more about men and women and chainsaws and S-C-E-X. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Idiot. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>